Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Inclusivity is a recurring theme throughout today's show. Beautiful Blackbird is a beloved children's book by the Newbery Award-winning author Ashley Bryan. The story is based on a Zambian folktale about appreciating one's heritage and discovering the beauty within each of us. The Alliance Theater is performing free family concerts around town of beautiful Blackbird Live. And later this hour, Chris Moses of the Alliance will tell us about this funky musical version of the story. Celebrating our differences has been at the heart of Sesame Street ever since the show began in 1969. And those lovable puppets continue to teach us the importance of including everyone's stories. I'll talk with John Ludwig, the artistic director of the Center for Puppetry Arts, about the phenomenal success of Sesame Street and the center's amazing collection of Jim Henson's puppets that live full-time here in Atlanta, and you can see at the museum in Midtown. First, from the silent film era to the streaming era, a new book by Ben Beard explores timely issues of race and representation in film. The South Never Plays Itself, a film buff's journey through the South on screen, is part cultural history, part film criticism, part memoir, and the book provides an engaging look at the South in the movies. On June 3rd, the author will appear in a virtual event at the Atlanta History Center, a conversation with Emory University film professor Matthew Bernstein. Ben Beard joins us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thanks for having me, Lois. What do you mean when you say the South never plays itself? Well, uh, I, I watched a lot of movies as a kid, and I grew up in the South. I was born in Atlanta, and I grew up in Pensacola, Florida. And the South that I saw never matched up the South of my uh, experiences. And so 
the titles just have multiple meanings, right? Like, A, oftentimes films set in the South, especially back in the day, were filmed in California, like Gone with the Wind, right? But then also that the South is, for a variety of reasons, co-opted or um, mistreated or protected by outsider directors and writers who don't really understand the region. But you do, as you said, born in Atlanta, grew up in Pensacola. How do you incorporate your own history into this book? Well, I like film writing that's personal. So I was that's what I set out to do. I lived in Montgomery, Alabama for seven years, and it doesn't really get more Southern than that. <laughs> um, and then I moved back to Atlanta as an adult. And so I try to I like drop into the narrative um, occasionally sort of saying where I was when certain movies that I watched or certain eras that I'm covering. Like, here's the thing about Florida, right? Growing up in Florida, Florida is both uh, a quintessential Southern state, right? And yet parts of it aren't Southern at all. And so I would argue most people who lived in Florida feel both of the South and not of the South. And so that's kind of like where I'm coming from. Also, you know, it's supposed to be fun and, and kind of funny. And so I'm playing with the idea that, well, hey, the South's not a monolithic thing, right? So people from Tennessee have very little in common with people from South Florida, yet we're all lumped in together when, you know, people talk about politics or culture. But for me, I actually didn't identify with uh, the rural or with traditional Southern kind of themes. I was into like punk music and hardcore and shaved my head and, you know, in the 90s. I both feel, I, I feel ambiguity. I had nothing to do with hunting or fishing or farming or the Confederacy or any of that. I rejected all of that. And so even though I grew up in the South completely, I didn't even get out of the Southern region. I didn't even travel outside of the South until I was 20. I just didn't feel a part of all of that. I love movies. And so part of what I was hoping to work through in this was my own ambiguity towards my birthplace and birth region, and then also give like a different take on American cinema. Yeah. Of course, there's another layer of Southern identity with the New South. And I wonder if you had spent your formative years in Atlanta, which has been so very progressive in terms of politics and race relations since the 1970s, if your identity might have been different. Absolutely. I'm convinced it would be because I wouldn't have felt like an outsider in Atlanta, I don't believe. Uh, my cousins lived there and I would come for two weeks or so every year uh, in the summers. I love Atlanta. I, I wish I lived there. If, in an ideal world, I would have a job at Turner Classic Movies. and would. <laughs> but I think Atlanta is, a, a, in many ways, it, it has lots of problems, right? But it's an enlightened and progressive place, especially in terms of race. There's no question about it. I love your line. The South is both a region and a thought experiment real and fiction at the same time. The South is a place and an idea. Please tell us more about what you mean when you speak of the South as an idea. Well, so I believe a couple of key novels and a couple of key films have given the, the world a view of the South that's uh, mythical and false. And I'm talking about Gone with the Wind. I'm talking about the work of William Faulkner. I'm talking about the work of Tennessee Williams. 
and I'm talking about Deliverance. And these are films that it almost creates a tapestry that's contradictory at times, but um, it's more real in the minds of most people, including people living in the South, than the world we live in. And I'll give you like an example. Pat Conroy, he grew up in the Carolinas and his mother loved Gone with the Wind and basically would read it all the time and, you know, loved the film and would kind of talk about the Gone with the Wind as like a rejection of the Civil War narrative that the country had up to that point. Utterly false. And I would argue that a military family in North Carolina has very little in common with like a plantation owner that never existed in Georgia, right? But Gone with the Wind has this like immense pull that it pulls people into its narrative arc. And we're still arguing over that film. I mean, former President Trump mentioned it on the campaign trail in like in March of last year. So there's this kind of idea of the South that is contradictory and complex, right? That involve it, it involves uh, Memphis, Jackson, Mississippi, uh, parts of Texas, Central Florida. These places that have nothing in common with each other, and yet they're all bound together by uh, these kind of films and a set of ideas, right? And one of them is grievance, one of them is racism, one of them is uh, the idea that we lost a war and were uh, occupied, right? Forgetting the fact that we were wrong right? That the South was on the wrong side of the war. So I think this is part of the like invented idea. Well, you mentioned birth of a nation in addition to Gone with the Wind. What damage have these films caused in their depictions of the South? Well, it's well known now. Birth of a Nation caused actual murder. The KKK reformed after the popularity of the film and they committed widespread terror. And murder, you know, it's honestly, if Birth of a Nation had never come out, you could argue the KKK would not have reformed. So there's a film that caused, uh, you know, thousands, literally thousands of deaths throughout up until, I don't know, the 1950s. And also there's like a cultural damage, right? Because Birth of a Nation gave us these stereotypical views of Black characters. They were white actors in Blackface, but uh, of Black characters that we, those got kind of woven into the films for decades. So there's immense damage that was done by a film like uh, Birth of a Nation. Now, I think it should be noted, I don't think Gone with the Wind is a kind of continuation of Birth of a Nation at all. I think Gone with the Wind is problematic. I think Birth of a Nation is evil. Yes. You know, I'm not saying like Gone with the Wind should be like cut or excised or anything. You can't. But I think Birth of a Nation is like handling it. I mean, it's an evil film, right? It's also the first blockbuster and it's a work of singular genius in a way. So, uh, I mean, I actually don't know what you do with it. (laughs) I never got that. I never got the genius. And yet I know film scholars consider that, but it's sort of like Laney Riefenstahl and the triumph of the will. I mean, Birth of a Nation is propaganda. It's a hate film, and it perpetuates hate, incites it. I agree. I mean, I don't. I never watched it for this reason. I watched it for the book, and I, I don't like silent cinema anyway, so it was laborious for me. However, there's cross-cutting, there's tracking shots, there's action shots that, like, no one was doing, 
But I agree with you. You can't really strip out the form of the film from its message or its content. That's a, that's a dumb thing to do. That's an academic parsing that I'm not interested in. However, it's hard because Birth of a Nation is historically important. So we can't ignore it. It's a weird thing. We can't not watch it. And then yet we really, I don't know if we should watch it. So it's, you know, it's like, it's just sitting out there. I don't know if anyone really knows what to do with it. Mm -hmm. The scope of your book is massive, analyzing over a century of cinematic history. How did you choose this vast collection of films you feature? My first draft was 650 pages, and I turned it into the publisher, and I said, I'm adding, um, I'm adding 10 films a week, right? I have to get rid of it. I worked on it for eight years. I was like, I have to turn this in because this thing's going to be like a four-volume magnum opus, and then the editor who did a marvelous job, it was very painful for me. The editor like stripped out um, enormous chunks of text, cut movies that she thought were extraneous or, or repetitive. And so, I, I mean, there's another book, like a whole other book, right, uh, that was edited out of the same length, basically. I tried to pick films that resonated with me personally or were important historically. And then I stumbled across some kind of weird films that I thought, oh, this is interesting. And yeah, I, to me, it's all personal. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. My guest is the author Ben Beard. His new book is The South Never Plays Itself. A film buff's journey through the South on screen. Is it true that for a two-year period of your life, you watched a different film every night? Yeah, I was in Iowa City, and my wife was in graduate school, and we made about $20,000 together. So I didn't have any money, and I didn't know anybody, right? So I had no money, didn't know anybody. So I they had a great public library, and so I would go and grab a bunch of films, and I was only grabbing the good stuff the best European films, the best Japanese films, you know, the best Criterion films, the best classic Hollywood movies. And so for two years, I watched The Wire too, but for two years, I watched basically a movie tonight because my mom, my wife was busy. It was a film education. It was great though, because I like built up a palette for cinema. I wouldn't trade those years for the, for the world. I read that the film that best represents your personal version of the South is Steven Soderbergh's movie, Magic Mike. Why? Well, I'm not a, a exotic dancer, <laughs> uh, so there's not that. But a, there's two ways to look at a film. It's like, well, there's multiple ways. But one way that's kind of fun if it's filmed in a region that you know is you look behind the characters, right, at the landscapes and the cityscapes and stuff. And it's filmed around Tampa, and it it like the the beachy, boozy, kind of druggy, sort of semi suburban milieu. Like that's like what I grew up in. There's no talk of the South. In a way, it's not a Southern film, right? I mean, it's even more local than that. But yeah, to me, I think it's a great movie. I mean, the second one's a, a, a horrible, but the Magic Mike thing's a great movie. And But the, the kind of vibe of it really resonated with me. The Florida Project is another film that really resonated with me, which is a great movie, but also it, like, it felt familiar. Where does Spike Lee fit in? Well, he's you know, an essential uh, American filmmaker and one of the great uh, directors, even though his, a lot of his movies are just okay. But School Days, he made a historically black college film, School Days, 
And it's about the political awakening of a young man in college. It's a musical. It's a wonderful film. If you haven't seen it, it's great. I love it. Yes, it's, it's wonderful. But it's about a guy who's being pulled in different directions by the culture. To me, it's not his best film because Do the Right Thing is like a seminal film. I'm going to come back to Do the Right Thing in a minute. But School Days, a quintessential uh, Southern film about the Black experience, Black college experience, and it's Spike Lee. It's one of his best films. Now, Do the Right Thing is in the book because it lost Best Picture famously to Driving Miss Daisy, right? Right. People were up in arms, understandably. And his, like it's become this kind of story that film writers talk about, that Hollywood always gets it wrong. And do the right thing, lost to Driving Miss Daisy. And do the right thing. It's a more important film. It's a better film. However, Driving Miss Daisy is a great movie. Now, Spike Lee lost, Black Klansman lost to Green Book for Best Picture, you know, 30 years later or 25 years later. And Spike Lee said, you know, anytime someone drives anybody, I lose. <laughs> well, and, and then there's Selma. The movie, Selma. Uh, so I uh, have been to Selma a lot, and it's a, uh, a wonderful place that's also really sad. Uh, it should be one of the great southern small cities, uh, and it's not uh, for reasons that I can't get into here. But the film follows the Selma Montgomery March and the, beginning, the beginnings of it and then the march itself. But it's really about Martin Luther King trying to get this thing going. I'm not a very big fan. I like Ava DuVernay a lot. I think her, uh, when they see us on Netflix, I thought that mm -hmm. miniseries was wonderful. Selma, the problem with it, honestly, is that Martin Luther King's one of the only saints and one of the only heroes we have. And it's not that he's boring because he was a complex man. He was very funny. Uh, he was steely. He was politically astute. He was a genius. He was a great public speaker, right? I mean, he had like a lot going for him. However, the film can't, square that he's not he, the movie shouldn't be about him because he's too sacred and so i actually think selma is i'm glad it was made it has a great scene when the first march gets attacked by the uh police but i wish we had a better film about the selma montgomery march honestly hmm. why do you think forrest gump is the most uber southern movie ever made <laughs> well okay so I love that movie and both kind of hate it. Uh, I think it's a, a great film at times. I think it's a blowhard, ridiculous film at others. But I think, A, it taps into all of the, like when people think of the civil rights movement, they think of the late 50s and early 60s and then the mid 60s, right? And the film follows Forrest Gump in the South during those periods. And then he goes to Vietnam and he comes back, right? But he's there for, uh, he like hears George Wallace give the schoolhouse door speech. And then he runs over and gives a book to the black student who's like going into the university. He's on the University of Alabama team, Bear Bryant's uh, famed football team. He um, is from a small town in Alabama. And, you know, the movie is both like a condemnation of American folly uh, and a celebration of a life that never existed. So Forrest Gump's very complex in a way. Uh, and, you know, I knew a guy who said it was that he go, oh, he worked in a, a video store in Atlanta. He thought it was the most video drone, I think still around. Oh, yes. he, he thought it, he's, he told me this was back in like 2002. He said he thought it was the most conservative film Hollywood ever put out. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he was like, well, it's easy to be against the Vietnam war, but like, you know, when the Black Panther guy is talking, 
we hear it through Forrest Gump's ears and it's like, no, we just have to be nice to each other as though that would really resolve some of the, you know, thornier problems of America. So Forrest Gump is, is dazzling. I, I don't know. I, I, you know, you could write a whole, I'm sure people have, you could write a whole book on Forrest Gump itself. Hmm. Yankees in the South is a recurring theme in many movies. Why do you think my cousin Vinny does exceptionally well with that theme? Okay, so it's got a great cast. It's got a razor-sharp script. It, it pits undereducated New Yorkers who are smart, right, but they're not sophisticates, right. against highly educated Southerners in terms of the judge and the lawyer, right? And so it reverses the normal power dynamic, and it's very funny. And then it delights in these little regional differences that used to matter. They don't anymore. But when the two, when Vinny goes to order at a diner and he orders grits and he's like, well, what is a grit? And the guy like explains it to him and then he serves it to him and he like takes a little bite, a little piece. It's really funny. Um, it makes no sense now because you can get grits anywhere. You can get them in San Francisco, you get them in New York. But I think my cousin Vinny is, I think it's optimistic about America, weirdly. And I think that it, it delights in the foibles of, of us and, and the like kind of silliness of America. And it, it's a great film. I mean, it's not perfect, but it, it's so funny and it has a great kind of bouncy energy. You know, when Ed Gwynn, the judge tells uh, Vinny, like he keeps saying, cause Vinny doesn't know what he's doing in the, in the trial. And he says, you know, once again, our communication is broken down. Right. And I feel like that gets to like, people kind of going to certain parts of the South and misunderstanding what they're seeing, right? In a really kind of profound way. So you enjoy the stereotype reversal, if you will. Well, I got to say, I, I live in Chicago, one of the most segregated cities in America. Yes. Uh, there is animus here, okay? You know, when I go to Atlanta, when I lived in Atlanta, people hung out. I mean, really, people hung out. It was much more integrated. And I get tired uh, and I'm not I'm not defensive towards the South at all. I think the South has tons to reckon with and atone for. However, the idea that every Southerner is racist and every like non-Southerner is like some enlightened, you know, racially enlightened person. That's crazy because just look around at our country. Right. Like, we, you know, the police are shooting black citizens everywhere. And uh, I, I'm saying the South has historically has a lot to atone for. But good God. I just reject the idea that people in Ohio or Pennsylvania are like, you know, racially enlightened. And if, but if I have a Southern accent, I'm like, you know, basically evil. Yes. So this gets back to the whole idea of presuming certain beliefs of stereotype notions. How can young filmmakers do better representing the complexities of the South? Well, one, I think we have a lot of good filmmakers now coming out of the South. Barry Jenkins, uh, who just, he did Moonlight. I haven't seen it yet, but he has the Underground Railroad, which I'll watch. But, you know, Moonlight um, is instructive because it's it's wonderfully filmed. It's steeped in the language and history of cinema. But it's about a gay, black, Southern citizen in Miami, which is like, I've never seen that story before. I've seen lots of Miami films. I've never seen that story before. I feel like it captures some of the good things about living in Miami and in the Florida. And then it also kind of captures some of the bad things, right? And how, why? Because the writer's from there. He, it's local. He knows what he's doing. 
he knows what he's talking about. I think his name's Jeff Nichol, the guy who did Mud. He's another great young uh, oh, filmmaker, yes. wonderful, a couple of great films. Uh, and he writes about the kind of Arkansas, rural Arkansas. And he, he's a wonderful filmmaker. And he did Loving, I think, in Virginia, set in Virginia. I think he's grappling with the whole equation of mm-hmm. the South in his films, right? The good and the bad. And there's no, it's the, I, I, here's what I would say to young filmmakers. I'm not a filmmaker. I wish I were. Don't be sentimental. Like tell the stories you're going to tell about where you come from, but don't be sentimental. Don't glamorize or try to praise things that just don't deserve it. Ben Beard is the author of The South Never Plays Itself, a film buff's journey through the South on screen. Beard's virtual conversation from the Atlanta History Center with Emory film professor Matthew Bernstein will be online June 3rd. More information will appear on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. If you've forgotten what it's like to experience the joy of live performance, the Alliance Theater is flying to the rescue with free outdoor performances of Beautiful Blackbird Live, a concert based on Ashley Bryan's delightful children's book of the same name. Chris Moses is the Director of Education and Associate Artistic Director for the Alliance Theatre. He joins us now via Zoom. Chris, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's so wonderful to be back here. This concert was originally staged earlier in the spring as part of your Under the Tent series. What inspired you to revive the show and bring it out on the town as free public performances? Well, let let me go back a little bit because the origin of the piece, it it started years ago as part of our Bernhardt Theater for the Very Young series. And we performed it in the tiny black box theater. It was fully interactive. It was a wonderful play written by Theron Patterson and directed by Donya Washington. Um, But a funny thing happened during the course of that play, parents would come to see this show and started calling our office asking about if they could book this Blackbird band. (laughs) And they just bought into this idea that there was this band that existed outside of the show. And they started playing, you know, corporate gigs and festivals. I think someone called about them playing a wedding at one point. It was just wild. They took on a life of their own. So as we were thinking about doing something again outside under the tent, 
we thought it would be great to actually lean into this fiction that there is this amazing band, uh, the coolest band on the planet, and they just happen to be birds. And they, <laughs> So that's what we did this spring out under the tent. And it was just as joyful as you could possibly imagine to remind people about the power of live music to heal these wounds and uh, to lift us all up. And uh, so from that experience, it became clear, like, we need more people to hear the coolest band on the planet. What if it could be our gift to take this experience on the road and start to meet families where they are in their neighborhood. So if there were families who weren't able to make it down to Midtown to the Woodruff Arts Center, we are going to come to you. We want to surprise you with all of the joy that the Blackbird Band embodies. Oh, well, let's talk a little bit about this music and fantasy band. Longtime Atlanta theater goers may well know Eugene Russell as an actor. He wrote the original music for Beautiful Blackbird Live, and as you mentioned, it's performed by a five-member band. How would you describe the music? First, Eugene is such a gifted composer. This all originated from a picture book from Ashley Bryan, who's a wonderful, wonderful, vibrant picture book artist. He's 97 and still creating every day. He's amazing. But this particular book is very much rooted in uh, 1970s aesthetic. So when Eugene and I were first talking, we knew we wanted music that would evoke that same spirit. So Eugene uh, and I, we just started talking about all of these uh, common influences that we were looking at. And he went back to like these great Donald Byrd records and the early meters recordings and decided that he wanted to create that kind of style. So he composed, and it's an interesting makeup of band. Um, It's a djembe player is the only drummer on it, bass, guitar. And luckily, Eugene's not only a gifted composer, he's a fantastic saxophone player. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't, but I know he's a dancer. Wasn't he in something with Mo one more time? Oh, 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 Five Guys Named Mo, the Louis, Louis Jordan. Um, That's he it. Was- yeah, he's astonishing. I mean, I think I first saw him at George Shakespeare. Yes, yeah, yeah. No shortage of talents there. So he not only composed the music, but he is performing. He is lovebird in our show. So he is <laughs> the front man of this uh, uh, bird band. And he's just astounding on stage. A great showman, great band leader. So the music just really has that 1970s funk style. And the band, Lois, these are heavyweight musicians. I mean, they've played with everyone from Hugh Masekela to our, our guitar player had been on tour with Leon Bridges. Wow. I mean, just they're, they're amazing. Um, and they happen to be birds and they happen to be playing for free and they happen to be playing music for all ages. There were yeah. the yard birds. They're real birds. <laughs> Big bird. Alvin had chipmunks. Why not? Why not blackbirds? The story focuses on five birds that have flown all the way from Africa to sing about how beautiful it is to be black and to celebrate the unique beauty in each of us. How is this storyline conveyed to the audience? Yeah, so that that is really the entire conceit right there. We were 
really clear we weren't going to make this a narrative outside of the idea that there are these amazing birds that, that have flown over to share this positive music with everybody. Um, but the story, Ashley Bryan's uh, original story, is rooted in a Zambian uh, folktale about this blackbird that, that is the most beautiful bird in the village there. So that was the uh, animating impulse. But as far as sharing it, it is unapologetically a concert. You know, the, the, like I said, the only uh, framing is that these amazing, astonishing musicians are birds <laughs> that are <flying> <laughs> to perform for you. And then the lyrics and the music really, really lift up that message that you're talking about. The shows were conceived to be COVID safe. Now that outdoor performance restrictions have been lifted, will there be any difference in the presentation? No, we are going to still err on the side of caution. Um, one wonderful accidental that came out of our COVID safety precautions, we needed to figure out a way to mask the band when they weren't singing. So the members who weren't singing, our guitar, bass, and drummer, had to stay masked. And uh, we hired Lex Lang, who's one of the most brilliant costume designers in the world, uh, Lois, you'd remember he did uh, Troubadour. It was the only time I've seen a costume get applause in the middle of a show. Oh. <laughs> so, so just, we knew he would do something special. And not only did he create these flamboyant, amazing costumes, but he was so smart enough to design masks that look like beaks. So you have these wild looking bird masks um, that are actually COVID safe. And we're going to maintain that. That just became woven into part of the design. And um, as a concert, we're still going to maintain distance from the audience, but we can certainly uh, uh, attract larger groups than we initially thought. How did you choose the locations that will showcase the free performances? We wanted to lean on uh, community partners and also make sure that we were capturing as diverse a cross-section of neighborhoods as we could, like I said, so we could just meet people where they tend to go. So we drew a circle basically around Atlanta and we're like, okay, let's make sure we can hit each side of our city. And then the, the one piece that I'm, I'm really excited about and proud that we were able to do is, again, this idea we wanted to surprise people with joy. I was thinking about, you know, elementary school kids. I feel like they've gotten such a, it had such a tremendously, impossibly hard year. And now many are being forced to go into summer school. And I just thought that was such an unfair proposition for these kids, man. So um, we worked with Atlanta Public Schools. And is there a particular site where we could show up unannounced? And just imagine that, though. It's like if you're stuck inside, you know, having to learn math in the summer after this year. But then suddenly this band of birds comes down and descends in your playground and like <laughs> starts playing for you. So we are going to some schools, to the YMCA. Of course, we're doing some on our home turf. We have two shows in honor of the Mayor Summer Reading Club. That's where we're kicking this off on June 3rd. We'll be on the piazza at the Woodruff Arts Center. And again, June 13th on the Arts Center campus uh, in collaboration with the High Museum. Oh, that's fantastic. Chris, this is such a family-friendly show and so engaging for kids. What kind of audience response have you observed or feedback have you gotten? What I saw and what just elevated my spirits in, in so many ways was sheer exuberance, Lois. There were, 
young people and not just the young people. That's what was so um, rewarding that this truly is music for all ages. Um, and it does not condescend to young people. It is sophisticated, yet it just grooves. So these kids are up dancing and jumping. And that that's what we really wanted to see. Um, but not only the kids, <laughs> they're, they're, they're adults where they're enjoying the music every bit as much, um, because I think it really does just speak to something universal in the, in the human spirit. Oh, there's a fantastic video available on YouTube for one of the show's featured songs, Beak and Wing. Oh. Yeah, the animation is reminiscent of the old schoolhouse rock numbers of the 70s and early 80s. Beak to beak, peck, 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 spread your wings, stretch your neck. Black is beautiful, uh-huh. Black is beautiful, uh-huh. Beak to How did that video come about? Oh, I'm so glad you asked about it. I'm even more glad that you've seen it, Lois, because I, I thought it was a perfect way to introduce this idea. So, you know, as we've been talking about, it's rooted in the 70s. And as we were thinking about a way to promote the show, you know, I, I was really thinking about those old Jackson 5 videos. <laughs> and we thought, you know, if the Jackson 5 band can have a cartoon version of themselves, the Blackbirds certainly deserve that. Um, and it also called to mind, I don't know, you probably don't know this record, but Brittany and I have this ridiculous, wild record by the Sugar Bears, which was a... <laughs> I do not know that. I'm sorry. Like calculated, certainly uh, a way of trying to sell cereal to kids, I guess, in the 70s. But hidden on these grooves of the record are some amazing music. And the idea of these little cartoon bears playing this music made me really giggle. So I was thinking about that and the Jackson 5 and Eugene and I had just worked with the Palette Group. They're the ones who animated Pearl Clegg's beautiful sit-in play. Oh, yes. Seth was magnificent. Oh, I, I loved it so much and loved Palette. Matthew and David Attaboy are just brilliant artists. So we wanted to find another project to work with them on. So uh, we approached them and asked them if they would animate uh, our Blackbird band. And those characters you see, like that's an animated Eugene Russell fronting the band in the costume that Lex designed for him. <laughs> So the idea is kids would see this cartoon and then realize when they came to the Alliance stage or now when the Blackbird Band comes to them that they are these real live performers. Oh, Chris, this is just so much more than a flight of fancy. Everything about it just breathes delight. Thank you so very much. You are so welcome, Lois. Performances of Beautiful Blackbird Live begin tomorrow in Midtown, and you can see a full list of the free concert dates and locations on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The writer Malcolm Gladwell described the essence of Sesame Street as the artful blend of fluffy monsters and earnest adults. Many of those fluffy monsters were Muppets, created for Sesame Street by Jim Henson. Atlanta's Center for Puppetry Arts is home to the world's largest collection of Jim Henson puppets and artifacts, so it's all the more meaningful to have as our guest 
John Ludwig, the artistic director of the Center for Puppetry Arts. John, welcome back to City Lights. Oh, my pleasure. Now, Sesame Street became a cultural phenomenon and remains so today. Essential to its success was the creation of those puppets by Jim Henson. I read that initially Henson was reluctant to become involved with the show. What do you think changed his mind? I think it was the opportunity to interact, you know, with the Children's Theatre Workshop, who at first they had child psychologists who said that the puppets and the humans could not mix. It would just confuse the children. And of course, they did a lot of tests. And they found that, well, the kids paid total attention to the puppets. But when it was time for the human actors to interact, they lost them. And the Muppets were not your normal puppets back then in, what was it, 69. They were a wild bunch. <laughs> Aren't I mean, they every, still? <laughs> oh, they're still a wild bunch. But they, they came in, they were just wild. Most skits that Jim Henson created always ended with an explosion or something blowing up or something <laughs> happening. Ernie, I think uh, it's time to have a talk about taking turns. I mean, you know, uh, you've been watching TV for a long time, and I want to listen to a record. Shh. Come on, Bert. Can't you see I'm trying to watch TV? No, come on. Okay, smart guy. You watch your old TV. I'm going to play a record anyhow. Hey! Hey, Bert! Hey, I, I can't hear the TV with the record going. Okay. You want to play the record? See if you can hear your record with the radio going. Aha! Uh -huh. Okay, smart guy. See if you like this over What's here. How about that? Nice! Yeah, yeah. Sure. Sure. Why not? <laughs> well, you blew a fuse. And I think that appealed to Jim Henson a kind of freedom with the characters that they could come up with these wild characters, Oscar the Grouch. I mean, what kid show had a grouch? <laughs> and yet, how many of us identify with him? Oh, definitely. They, they really worked on the characters. The Muppets are character-driven, very much so. Everything comes from the character. And from what I have read about Jim Henson, and having met his wife, I would think the program's commitment to social goals and causes was also very appealing to them. Yes, very much indeed. They covered a lot of ground, and they were always about social justice, and they were always about the importance of feeling good about yourself, respect for others, very prominent issues for today, and and they're continuing. They're, now they have the, the Power of We program, which is uh, about racism and anti-racism. And they call them the upstanders. So it's dealing with these issues, but atoned for what a kid can understand and appreciate and, and act upon. Elmo wants to be an upstander to racism. Yeah, me too. But, well, I don't know what to do. I know it can be hard. How do you know what to do 
When you hear someone say You're not good enough Go away When someone is not letting Because of the color of their skin How do you know what to do? John, why do those fluffy monsters and their more human-looking counterparts like Ernie and Burke make such great teaching tools? Because they're so real. The puppets are what they are. They are what they are. And I think kids and adults are fascinated by that. Kermit the Frog is Kermit the Frog. It's not somebody pretending to be Kermit the Frog, although Jim Henson's doing him. You don't see him doing it. It's not easy being green. Seems you blend in with so many other ordinary things. And people tend to pass you over because you're not standing out like flashy sparkles in the water or stars in the sky. They're more real than than the actors in a way, although the actors in Sesame Street are just phenomenal. They really picked some wonderful, wonderful people. Yeah, but your point about Jim Henson and Kermit, whom we should point out once again, showed up to cut the ribbon for the opening of the Center for Puppetry Arts building in 1978. I once got a video clip from Oscar the Grouch reminding me to vote. This was perfectly natural, but of course I was thrilled that Oscar was advocating this. (laughs) And as I watched the clip, I thought Oscar was comedian Louis Black minus the R-rated language. Now it's time for me to tell you what Oscar the Grouch loves, the thing that Grouches love best of all. Oh, I love trash. Anything dirty or dingy or dusty. Anything ragged or rotten or rusty. Yes, I love trash. If you really want to see something trashy, look at this. I have here a sneaker that's tattered and worn. It's awful. So clearly, I associate people with Muppets. I watched the Netflix series on the Borgias with my husband recently. Have you seen it by chance? No, I haven't. Oh, it is quite outrageous. And throughout the entire series, when Jeremy Irons was on screen, which is most of the time, he played the role of the infamous Borgia Pope Alexander VI. I couldn't stop thinking of Jeremy Irons singing Put Down the Ducky If You Want to Play the Saxophone with Ernie and Hoots the Owl. Excuse me, Mr. Hoots, I hate to bug a busy bird, but I want to learn the sax, and I need a helpful word. I always get a silly squeak when I play the blues. Ernie, keep you cool, I'll teach you how to blow the sax. I think I did your problem, it's rubber and it quacks. You'll never find the skill you seek till you pay your dues. You gotta put down the ducky. 
John, this may not seem that unusual to you because you understand the fine line between reality and these puppets. But the Muppets Jim Henson created for Sesame Street not only made the show popular, but brought tremendous recognition to Henson and his team. What impact did the success of Sesame Street have upon puppetry beyond the PBS program? Well, they sort of set the standard, and they invented a standard. Most puppet shows on TV before that were a locked-off camera, mostly a lot of them like a booth, like Kukla Fan and Ollie, who I loved, or Captain Kangaroo, you know, behind the table or under the desk or something. And the camera was just there. The Muppets, Jim Henson and that, they discovered that the camera was a wonderful window. It became the playboard. It became the stage. So they played to camera without a booth or sometimes, you know, they're hidden behind, you know, like the trash can or certain things, but they used the screen. They really used the language of film and, and TV. And he really, really exploited that where nobody else had quite thought it. Suddenly it was all this freedom to move around, to interact with the actors. It, it, it totally set the standard. And the quality of the characters really, and, and in the style, the Muppet style, the moving mouth, the hand and rod. You know, it's called hand and rod puppetry, but everybody knows it as Muppets. It's what everybody thinks of. Uh, often when we get requests, we're like, okay, you want a Muppet? Okay, we, you know, because we can't make you a Muppet because it's copyrighted. But we know what you're talking about. And the idea of anything puppets, what a brilliant idea. Instead of building tons of extra puppets, you just had a mix and match, kind of a Mr. Potato Head sort of effect. You could just switch out the face and you have a new character. Brilliant, really brilliant way of doing things. You worked with the Jim Henson Company on Bear in the Big Blue House. Your accolades are too many to list at this moment, though I will say that you've got nine citations of excellence from Unima USA, which is the highest award in puppetry. Yes, with a lot of help from all the other people here at the center. Yeah, nine awards. And then we have some other directors here, too. I think it's up to 12. Wow. But, John, I'm curious, how did Sesame Street influence your own career as a puppetry artist? Well, I saw the Muppets and the commercials is where I first saw them. The Cramel Milk commercials, the... All the other things they did, got milk, and if you didn't, they'd shoot you with a cannon, would shoot at you. And, and the little Troy dragon where he would just blow flames and knock everything down. And Ralph the dog, Jimmy Dean show. I just absolutely loved Ralph. I was convinced he was real, a real dog that talked. Wait, he's not? I know, you know, he's a puppet. As a kid, I was like, puppet, schmuppet. 
I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies. And it still is to me, too. I, every time I walk in the museum and see him, I just have to say hi. And, and I remember watching the Sesame Street. Somebody said, hey, you got to watch this. We just, I just graduated from high school. It was in 69. And I was like, I wish I had this when I was a kid. I would have been a much better reader. The Muppets, of course, were, you know, that's like the gold standard of, of puppetry. And yet Jim Henson also really, really promoted puppetry globally. and actually did a nine-part series of films with his favorite puppeteers around the world. All of them completely different, but he had an intense um, interest in, in the art form. And that's why Kermit and Jane and Jim came down and cut the ribbon. They, they, they promote, you know, not only did he have his own world, he was absolutely engaged with the world of puppetry. John Ludwig is the artistic director of the Center for Puppetry Arts. The center has recently released its summer lineup, and in a few weeks, we'll hear from museum director Sarah Dilla about the upcoming Dark Crystal exhibition. You can learn more about the Center for Puppetry Arts on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9, tomorrow at 11 a.m., Atlanta-based author Anjali Jetty. Her new novel, The Parted Earth, begins in 1947 during the partition of India, moves to London, and much of the story takes place in present-day Atlanta. City Light senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and Shelley Canavy is our engineer. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Archived interviews and shows are on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio. 
to just go for it. Visit wab.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.